Hello, and thank you once again for listening to the Hammerslay Inquisition, the world's most self-indulgent interview show. I am Jason Hammerslay, and as my diehard listeners know, my goal here is to reveal and record for posterity the wonder of the wonderful people in my life. Now, some of you may be wondering, when is Jason going to call me? Doesn't he think I'm wonderful? Where do I rank on his list? Am I on his list at all? Did he even consider me? Who does he think he is? I hate him. And the short responses to those questions are, respectively, eventually, probably, somewhere, maybe, maybe, Jason Hammerslay, and I'm sorry. The slightly longer answer is, I'm starting out with the people I thought would be the most likely to humor my far-out and unusual request, and then I selected for as much variety as possible. Think of these first guests as the low-hanging fruit. Eventually, if this project remains viable, I'll get around to most of you. And when that happens, I'll either reach out to you directly or I'll post something on Facebook. And if you haven't heard from me in a while, you know, feel free to drop a line, even if just to say hi. Now, speaking of low-hanging fruit, my guest today is Emily Epstein-White. Not only is she even shorter than me, but like any good fruit, she is sweet with just the right amount of tart. I met Emily at the University of Rochester when I was a junior, and she was a freshman, fresh woman, fresh person. She was definitely fresh. Anyway, uh, I was an editor at the college newspaper, and she was the hot new writing talent in the freshman (laughs) class. And she quickly became not just a prized member of the newspaper staff, but a dear friend whose romantic life made mine seem downright serene by comparison. In the years since her own graduation, she has been living large, carving out a career as a stand-up comedian, slash political activist, slash editor, slash mother of two small children. And she joins me on the phone today, between the slashes, to share a little bit of her chill with me. Emily, it is such a pleasure to be talking with you again. Jason, I am so happy to be talking to you. And wow, did you make my life sound interesting. You just wait. (laughs) As always, we start out with questions and tangents and answers. Questions and tangents and answers. And because you are a stand-up comic, I will be peppering these questions with some classic jokes. Oh, boy. But let's start at the beginning. You were in West Philadelphia, born and raised. Where did you spend most of your days? Uh, in the suburbs of Philadelphia. I spent all of my days pretty much, and then the occasional sojourn into uh, Philly to make myself feel cool. And were you then chilling out, maxing, relaxing, all cool? Yes, I was doing those things. That's true. Okay. Now, why did Emily cross the road? Or the country, as it were, since you recently moved back to Philly from Oakland? Because having small children is difficult. Uh, I mean, well, not making them and giving birth to them. I mean, they're going to come out at some point anyway. I mean, they just don't really give you a choice. But the actual trying to create them into a reasonable human being and also not losing your mind without family nearby is difficult. So also as wonderful as Oakland and the Bay Area is, it is very expensive there. Yeah, we made the sojourn home that many make and uh, look back and think, huh, this is not where I thought I would be uh, 20 years ago if I had looked at where I was going to end up. But yeah, it happens sometimes. 
So it was the lure of family that drew you back to your hometown. It was. I'd moved with my husband. I brought him when I moved because paperwork. And um, so when we moved out there because of a business opportunity that he had, and then I was working for the same company in a different capacity, in an editing capacity, and then he was no longer working with that company anymore, and I was working remotely. And then we had one child at that point, and we realized we could live anywhere. And we met in New York when I actually, we started stand up within a week of each other, coincidentally, and became good friends and then lovers and so many other things. Yeah, you just said lovers. Yeah, friends and lovers. Hi, mom. So we thought about moving back to New York, but then realized the life that we had been leading was not as conducive to children. And we were not sure how we would be able to live a life that we found fulfilling with kids in New York Mm. if we wanted to have a home and eat regularly. So are you back in the suburbs? I actually now live around the corner from where I grew up, which is still weird. So speaking of your childhood, you were born very near the cusp between Generation X and the Millennial Generation. Do you consider yourself more of a disaffected slacker punk or a spoiled narcissistic overachiever? Oh, I'm definitely a spoiled narcissistic overachiever. But you know what? It's weird because I was born in 79 and depending on what you read, I am different things. So I I don't think I'm a millennial, but if you read some findings, I'm like the first minute. So I might be speaking to the first millennial. Perhaps. Yes. Sorry. It's an honor. Well, let's talk about your college years when we met. Mm -hmm. How did you find yourself at the University of Rochester? Because this is way before Google Maps. Yeah, I'm not sure, to, to be honest. I applied to a bunch of different schools, and I had an idea I thought of where I wanted to go. And when I was younger, I was very into photography, and Kodak was there. So I thought that maybe this might make sense for me. But then really what sealed it for me was when I, I I think I got into like maybe five or six schools in the end and went and looked at all of them. And I really liked Rochester. Rochester looked like what college should look like in my mind. And it wasn't too big. You know, it was the Goldilocks, not too big, not too small. And people were friendly. It was probably also not snowing that day. So that helped. Um, Goldilocks usually refers to temperature, Emily. You know, people were in shorts because it was probably like, 47 degrees. So that's a warm day there. So I think it was a good decision at the end of the day. While you were at the University of Rochester, you became an editor at the University of Rochester Campus Times or the Mm -hmm. CT. Mm -hmm. Uh, What would you like to have been your legacy at the CT? I don't know. I mean, I enjoyed my time there so much. I mean, I was, there were two things I wanted, I thought I went to do when I, when I grew up, I thought I wanted to either be a photographer or a journalist. And so I was around a bunch of like-minded people who were as passionate about it as I was. And it was just a wacky, fun group of personalities. And I just, I mean, it was just, they were my people. So you found your tribe. I did. It was funny because I always, you know, like I thought at one point I wanted to join a sorority. And then I realized, actually, if I had had a choice, I probably wanted to join a fraternity, which just wasn't an option. And, you know, it was like (laughs) there was certainly the initiation of just can you spend enough time there um, without (laughs) going nuts and and the dedication. And I mean, God knows it was you put as much time in on a normal week as you probably would of any other Greek organization. 
and you you do pay your dues in some form or another. Yeah, for sure. Knock knock. Who's there? No, Emily. Who's there? <laughs> what drives you? What what drove you to New York City after college? Well, I moved back to Philly for about 10 minutes. I um I wanted to be a journalist. And so I was working for a couple local newspapers and none of them would hire full time. So I ended up having to write like 70 articles a week to try and make a living. And that just, there just isn't that much going on and I can't write that fast. So I spent a lot of time trying to figure out what I could do that used my skill set that I also found interesting. And it was all just basically words. So book publishing was the next um, obvious choice. And so I had made a connection with one of the publishing houses at a, a job fair through Rochester when I was still in college. And I just followed up with them like a relentless and eventually got a job there. And I moved to New York two weeks before September 11th because I have amazing timing. So, well, I don't yeah. want to say that you were a target, but <laughs> if I am a target, then the terrorists have definitely won because, wow, that's some intel. But uh, yeah, no, I, I moved up there and that was the reason that I had moved because I got a job. And I mean, I had always wanted to get into stand up, too. And so being up there helped me to finally get there because there was an obvious scene as opposed to Rochester, which um, is much, much smaller comedy scene there. So you mentioned that you got this uh, this gig in publishing. What kinds of books were you reading? I was working on adult the like, adult division, like so it was adult, everything. Adult, like adult. Penthouse Forum? No. Although I did at one point interview for a copy editor job at Playboy, which I sadly did not get. There are a lot of words. I was not expecting that job to have so many words, so that was a bummer. Um, but luckily, Well, there are a lot of synonyms. Yes, there are. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we, I worked on all sorts of different stuff, which was one thing that I really liked is that there was a lot of variety. So, I mean, we worked on Hillary Clinton's big uh, autobiography. Um, we worked on some really interesting nonfiction stuff. We worked on some interesting fiction. So there was it was yeah, it was a good mix of stuff. The job was awful, but it was publishing is kind of brutal when you first start and continue. Did you do any children's books as well? Yeah, my first job was as um, an assistant in managing editorial, and then my second job was as a, a production editor for in children's book publishing. So, and I was there for a long time. So I did lots of children's books, and it made me realize those are not all good books. I got to work on the Bernstein Bears, and I realized that they are horrible people. They're just not nice. The bears are horrible? The bears are not, yeah. Mm, like abusive alcoholics they just ran out of ideas i think about 400 books ago and they just keep cranking them out how much can a bear really do anyway not not even opposable thumbs i mean seven million books worth just watching grass grow i think that was one of the books the bernstein bears watch grass grow it was yeah well if you were to write your own children's book what anthropomorphized animal or object would you make the protagonist I think I would probably write from the perspective of a bulldog because I think that's what I resemble the most as a human being. So that would be an easy transition. Do you also have difficulty breathing? Yes. I get very congested. I'm very low to the ground. I'm kind of sachet when I walk. I mean, there's a lot of similarities. Hmm. I think that works. Yeah. Okay. So you're, you're a young single lady in New York City. Mm-hmm. Do you think of yourself or did you think of yourself back then as more of a Carrie, a Samantha, 
a Charlotte, a Miranda, a Hannah, a Marnie, a Shoshana, a Jessa, a Dorothy, a Blanche, a Rose, or a Sophia? Definitely a Blanche. And the best part was it's not like I watched Sex in the City thinking like, I want to move to New York when I grow up and live this life. But there was a moment when I was watching the show where I realized that these women were in their mid to late 30s. I think I was living in New York at that point and I was watching it and I realized that and I was like, I do not want to live this life at that age. That is a long time from now. I need to get my together before then. So that was an interesting wake up call for me. I'm proud of you for making that happen. Thank you. So I knew you in college as Emily Epstein, of course, sometimes mm-hmm. Epi for short. Mm-hmm. Yep. You have since gotten married to fellow comedian and triple threat, Elon James White, correct? Singer, dancer, and choreographer? Uh, husband, father, podcaster. Okay, that works too. He also is a threat to the KKK. Definitely. They are. And, they don't like, I mean, we both are, to be honest. And AAA and Better Business Bureau. Mm-hmm. Yes. All the three-letter acronyms. He's a menace. Yeah, to society. So now you're Emily Epstein White. I am. What does it feel like to be a white? I mean, it feels good to be recognized, finally. I mean, it had been subtle and sort of understated, but now I feel like it's really bold and in your face. So that's good. Do you feel like you've been embraced by the white community? Depends what part, but somewhat, yes. Sometimes I think they hear that name and are expecting one thing and they get something else and they can be very disappointed by that. But I like the the misdirection. That's fun for me. Well, finally, how many whites does it take to screw in a light bulb? Um, two. You know this from experience? Yes. Uh, it takes one to do it and then the other person to tell them they're doing it wrong. The and- answer is actually, judging by the U.S. Senate, more than 91. Do you have any allergies? Just in case I break out into a uh, stir fry here. I do. I have a tree nut allergy, um, which I have had as far as I know my whole life. Have you considered perhaps uh, branding or endorsing the EpiPen? I should. Did you know that there is a Dutch band called Anaphylactic Shock whose (laughs) sound has been characterized as sludge or doom metal? I didn't, but that makes me really happy. Wonderful. Well, now that you're happy, we're going to move on to the next segment, which I call Questions from the Listening Audience. Ooh, okay. Now for my favorite part of the show. What did I say? Talk to the audience? Oh, God, this is always death. This is the part of the program where I give the listeners an opportunity to ask a question of my guest. Unfortunately, I have no listeners yet, (laughs) but I do have access to other podcasts. So I'm going to ask questions that have been posed to a different podcast. Emily, please answer these questions as if they were posed to you. Okay. Our questions today were submitted to Ask Me Anything, which is a podcast of Australian origin, I believe, Mm -hmm. in which author and columnist Rebecca Sparrow answers anonymous questions from tween and teenage girls. Mm -hmm. First question is, I like my friend but she's always involved in dramas at school and she tries to get me involved even though I don't want to be. What do I say to her? Draw on your experience with dramas at school. Yeah. I would say she's probably not a good friend. And so you do go right up and say, listen, so-and-so, you're not being a good friend. Why don't you just 
back off. Yeah, I'd be like, listen, lady, she said no. How many times do you have to hear the word no? It's not her wheelhouse. Let her be her. Mm-hmm. And then I'd walk away. It can be hard for a, a tween and teenage girl to just kick a friend to the curb. I mean, I think back to, to my days, I didn't have a lot of friends to spare. Did you have any friends, though, that kept forcing you to do things that you hated? Uh, yes, for a while. But they were per, no longer your friends after per, a while, correct? Per, per your instructions, uh, they actually did not last very long as my friends. It's true. Actually, you know what it is? I have to say, I think at least my friends growing up in like high school, middle school, that sort of thing, we were friends because we had a lot of the same common interests. That's what, you know, similar, they draw, you draw together, that sort of thing. But it was after I graduated from high school that my friends became much more interesting. Because I don't want to have a lot of people around me like me. I'm fine. I know what I'm like. Looking for something different, you know? Variety is the spice of life. I I concur. That and paprika. Mm-hmm. Yes. Smoked paprika specifically. Very good. Really adds a little zest to the dish. I don't smoke. Our next question is, I've been invited on a sleepover at a new friend's house, and I'm really nervous about it. How can I be less nervous? I would recommend possibly bringing a change of clothes in case you uh, wet the bed. Don't wet the bring... bed? Yeah, you I don't... never know. Are you imagining um, like prank-related wetting the bed or like genuine any uh, arrested you development? Any kind. should always be prepared. Of... Um, I also feel like if you don't know exactly how these folks are going to be maybe don't bring your headgear if you don't feel comfortable or your back brace for your scoliosis or any of that stuff take a night off so uh, no on the back brace right yes on the diaper no just bring a change just a change of clothes just be prepared that's all isn't the horse out of the barn by the time you need a change of clothes not if you're quiet about it whoa Okay. Sleepovers can be intense. Getting real with you tween and teenage girls out there, especially those of you with severe anxiety or physiological disorders. When was your last sleepover? Non-romantic division. Uh, does it count if my child ends up crawling into my bed and uh, joining? Well, that's definitely a case where you might need a change of clothes. That's so true and definitely a thing that has happened. All right. Well, thank you for sharing your wisdom uh, with these vulnerable young women. Should I not start a column about that, perhaps? Too tough love, I think. I got to work on it. You shoot straight, Emily. I do. You shoot straight. Okay. It's time to stop with the nonsense and get real for a minute. I call this but seriously. B-U-T, not B-U-T-T, right? This question does not happen to be about buts. It's kind of hard to imagine what a serious conversation would be that, you know, focused on the butt. Yeah. Unless it was like a, a medical issue. But mm-hmm. y- you're not a medical professional. I'm not, not necessarily going to confront you with that right now. In this case, I'm very interested in your experience with the comedy world. Stand-up comedy sounds petrifying to me, m- more so even than sketch or even improv. Do you find the grind of writing and performing comedy to still be fulfilling? Yeah, it's been tough, actually. You know, I have a 
and a one-year-old and a three-and-a-half-year-old, and that has made it very difficult because I also work full-time and I want to be around my kids, and so and I don't sleep much. So that has made it very difficult, and I have thought seriously in the last couple of years if this is something that I want to continue to pursue. But what I've really truly found is that it is one of the few things that really makes me happy and really brings me a pure sense of joy. When I can connect with complete strangers, especially in a limited amount of time, and know that if they like me or don't like me, they find me interesting enough that they're willing to go where I take them. That is is so much fun for me and so fulfilling for me. And there's nothing that I have found that, that compares to that for me. So I don't know if it's it's like a broke back mountain sort of situation. I just don't know how to quit it. Um, it would probably be easier if I could just do a web series from home, but I love doing it. I'm sad that I didn't find it earlier. I mean, I was relatively young when I started doing it. And I've had lots of self-doubt over the years and thinking I'm not good enough or don't deserve an opportunity, but I really do love it more than anything. So not going anywhere. I imagine that stand-up comedy in particular is kind of like that proverbial iceberg where you actually don't see most of it because so much of it is underwater. With stand-up, I get the sense that performing is actually a small part of the job And most of the really hard work is invisible to the audience in terms of developing the material, honing the ideas, and polishing, polishing, polishing. Am I right about that? Yes and no. I mean, because you're right. The getting booked, the networking, the building your material and your set and all of that is definitely also a big part of it. I mean, when I had first started, you know, and I was living in New York, I would do lots of open mics, which is, you know, where anybody can perform. And I would have time in between my job and when the mics would start. So I would write for an hour or something and try things out and, and everything. And now that I am an different stage in my life. I don't have a lot of time to do a lot of writing. I'm not doing a lot of mics. I'm just doing shows that I'm getting booked and paid for. And so for me, actually, that time on stage is even more important because I'm paying attention to when I'm doing a joke, how I'm performing it and how the audience is reacting to it in a different way. So I'm thinking more about my performance and how if I tweak things a little bit, how I say it or what jokes I put around it. So the performance actually is a very big part of it. But starting out, it was less so. It's like the car ride over to wherever I'm doing my set. I'm thinking about my set list and how it's going to work and how I'm going to put things together. And then I'm listening at least intently to the people before me to try and see if there's anything I can riff off of or pull as a callback and use to build some familiarity and put me in the moment. And then I'm really using that time on stage to try some new jokes in the middle of there's time, depending on what kind of show, what stakes there are and how long my set is. But yeah, I'm putting, I'm putting a lot of energy into the actual performance time. So as you mentioned, you're a big part of a family now. <laughs> what would be the pinnacle of success for you in being a stand-up comic? I mean, in a perfect world, it would be making a living solely off of stand-up, but it's very hard to do these days. One, because you need to, if you're a touring comic, you're traveling all the time, and that's hard. And also because it's sort of, these days I feel like you can't just be a comedian anymore. You have to be able to act, you have to be able to have a pilot ready, and a screenplay, and all this other stuff. So I think for me, at this point, what I'd really like, I want to work 
regularly on my own terms, you know, like somewhere within the tri-state area. But also I want to be able to have the means and the comfort with my family if I have opportunities to fly and make that happen too. And as we mentioned, your husband is also in the business, in the industry. Is that cost or benefit? Actually, he stepped back a lot because of our kids. So he's sort of, it's it's both. It's great because when I had dated people in the past who were not involved in performing at all, it was stressful because a lot of times if they weren't performers, which was fine, they couldn't understand, like if, if it scared them to perform, to do stand up, they couldn't understand why I would do it. And so my feeling was always, you don't have to perform. You just have to be supportive of me. Like I would be supportive of you in any job that you have, you know, wanting you to succeed. So it's wonderful in that when I have a good set or a bad set, when I come home and I talk to him about it, he understands exactly what I'm talking about. So overall, I think it's great. The downside, though, is that we are very competitive with each other. And sometimes if I take a moment that we've had and turn it into a joke, he won't give me credit for it because he feels like he wrote it too. And you can't do a joke and be like, 50% of that joke was written by my hut. Like that doesn't, that's not how you, comedy doesn't have subtitles when it's done live, so. As a person who is not only in show business, but in a division of show business Mm -hmm. that is perhaps the most dominated by men, What has been your experience with sexism and sexual harassment in that environment? Well, the fun thing about stand-up is that it's totally unregulated. So there's no HR department, really. So it just is what it is. And I am a very friendly person. And so sometimes that can be misconstrued, even though people know I'm married. I have children, and that's been very clear. So, I mean, I have definitely had experiences with comics where we're out somewhere and someone says something inappropriate and you just have to shut it down. I've definitely had situations with bookers where they are patronizing. Uh, I had someone bring me up on stage once as I'm here because my husband brought me here. Um, many times I have done a show and if my husband came, people assume that I'm the girlfriend and not the performer. So it's like pretty consistent. The weirdest situation I think I ever had was, uh, when I was pregnant with my son, who is a year now, and I was doing a show, I was doing a weekend, um, at a club in the middle of nowhere. And I was like eight and a half months pregnant, maybe (laughs) nine months pregnant. So like you could tell that I was with the child. I wore my wedding ring. I had done a set where I talked about being pregnant and being married and having a child. And this guy was really drunk and just hit on me relentlessly while quoting my jokes. And I was like, I don't understand how I'm supposed to get out of this. And eventually one of the other comics who was male had to tell him to F off and had to walk me to my car because we were a little concerned about like what the dude might do. So those situations and things like that can still happen very easily because it's nighttime, people drink, and there's no boundaries. And also the idea is too, when you're doing stand-up, I mean, it depends on what you talk about. I am not Seinfeld. I talk about personal stuff. I don't find staplers or you know, balls of yarn that interesting. So I talk about personal experience. So sometimes people feel like they know you well because they watched you talk Uh uh-huh i mean i don't 
I don't lie about anything. I'm very truthful on stage, but um, I mean, I don't tell everybody everything. So, you know, people think they know you better than they actually do. So, so you're, you're talking mostly about your experiences with audience members or uh, people who are not necessarily performers. What about the, the community of performers? Is it difficult to sometimes know whether someone is being genuinely inappropriate or if they're just going for a laugh? Yes. Sometimes it is very hard to tell what's okay and what's not. And also, I mean, in all honesty, when you're talking to people, you know, comics that are farther along or bookers or managers or stuff like that, in all honesty, I feel like sometimes you let things slide as long as your safety isn't compromised because people say what they say, you know? So it's- And you don't want to be the killjoy at the table, right? Exactly. I mean, it really is a matter of just- there are no boundaries. There are, there are no lines of defense. I mean, I, I think with the, the sexism and stuff, I have found more often the issue of people being patronizing. And I think that's a combination of being a woman and being a short woman. So I think people just don't find me threatening. So I will have people patronize me as, you know, as bookers, the way they talk about me, how they refer to me, you know, as sweetheart or girl or whatever. And sometimes it's hard to have people take you seriously. And then usually if you're if you do a good job on your set, then people will be more respectful or more reasonable with you. Do you feel like there's a community with other female comics? Definitely. Every city that I have lived in and performed in, there has been a secret Facebook group of all women and or non-binary comics where we form and we talk smack about what's happening and let people know what's safe, what's not safe, who we should look out for. Absolutely. That is all over the place. Well, what do you think the immediate future holds for you in your career? I don't know. I mean, for me, it's trying to figure out what my new normal is. And with small children, it takes a while to figure that out. One of the things that people keep telling me is that it's really, really important not to lose yourself in your family, because then you don't know who you are. And that's not good for your kids. It's not good for your sanity. It's not good for your family in general. So for me, it's just a matter of I hope that I continue to grow as a person and as a performer and as an editor where I can do things on my own terms, where I have enough opportunities that I can say no if something doesn't feel right and not feel like I'm missing out and, and be able to really live the fullest extent of all aspects of my life. In this next segment... I will ask my guests to ask me a question. It's called Turn the Tables. Turn the Tables. The tables are now turned. My seat is now hot. Okay. It's a whole dining room experience. Fire away. All right. So my question for you is, did you have a clear idea of what you thought you wanted your adult life to be? And how different has your path been than what you imagined? When I conceptualized adulthood, and I think this is natural, I basically looked around at my own family experience and just figured I would try to duplicate that. Now, maybe that's because I had a pretty idyllic childhood, very safe, very comfortable to loving and supportive parents. And so I thought, okay, well, that's just what you do. You get a job, Mm -hmm. you work at your job, you raise your kids, Mm -hmm. and then you retire. 
And I know that saying that aloud, it makes me sound like just a cog in a machine, but that actually never really bothered me. Having a well-defined role and routine has always been just fine with me. As long as I was clear that I was selling my time and I could hold a little bit back just for me. And I think, I mean, I, I work hard and I take pride in what I do. And I, I care a lot about being a good teammate at work. But in the end, it is really just a job to me. It is not something that I live. And when I leave the office in the evening, that's it. I mean, the invention of working from home and cell phones with email on them was a very, very disappointing development for me because I really like the idea of just flipping that switch. Exactly. And I like being able to just come home and then be husband Jason and be daddy. And if I'm being totally honest with myself... I have to admit that I often take uh, an excessively utilitarian approach to family. Even though it's rooted in love, unlike my career, it's still wrapped up in a sense of duty, which I suppose is what I always thought being an adult was about. And so now here I am, working in an organization where I've worked 20 plus years, uh, living with my small nuclear family in a house in the suburbs. I'm suburban dad. I have become my father, which is pretty much what I guess I expected to be. And I guess that begs the question, did that happen because I engineered it that way? Or was it all just an accident? And I don't know the answer to that. I... I certainly made deliberate choices that got me part of the way here. And like I said, there's absolutely a genetic and environmental component too. Mm. You know, when I was in high school, I suppose, I may have had very brief delusions of grandeur about becoming an actor or a romantic writer. Writer of romance or... Not a Harlequin novelist, (laughs) necessarily, but uh, a writer in the romantic sense of exploring the comedy and tragedy and beauty of the world, romancing the world with how clever I am, doing the whole Hemingway thing without the cirrhosis of the liver. Mm -hmm. And I guess that's still my preoccupation, thinking deeply about things and writing them down, but I never had the guts to make that an actual occupation. And that whole idea of having a passion, much less making that one's profession, always struck me as a notion that was not very adult at all, really. Did your parents encourage you to be whatever you wanted to be? Or did they want you to be something practical? I think... If you asked my two parents that question, you'd get two different answers. (laughs) Because my father is a very practical guy, like I said, concerned with duty and obligation. But I think because work is just work 
to him like it is with me, he would have been fine with me doing whatever I wanted to do as long as I could support myself. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, my mother is much more spiritual and artistic and free thinking and is concerned with things like personal fulfillment in a way that my dad was really sort of disinterested. But my mom has very prescriptive ideas about what that means. And I, and I always got the impression that she wanted me to be a lawyer or a doctor or a novelist or an actor or someone else with a lot of quote unquote status. Yeah. So I had a lot of latitude, but I also felt a lot of pressure to self-actualize. And I guess I split the difference by having a job that pays the bills while reserving a rich, dramatic inner life that I distribute sparingly on the internet. It's funny, like, I think my parents both had very practical careers. My mom was a teacher and my dad was a tax lawyer and accountant. And they always were very supportive of myself and my brother doing whatever made us happy. They just wanted us to succeed. And so it's interesting because my brother and I both took creative routes, me with stand-up and he as a musician. But the difference was, and there's lots of talk about first sibling versus second, you know, the older versus the younger. But for me, I always felt like, okay, I want to pursue my dreams, but I have to have a job. I have to have a living. I have to have a, a, a day job. And so for me, I've always had that career and, you know, my day job. And for my brother, it was, you know, he started out by going to school and then he was going to major in music, but also major in business and then made the decision that, no, he doesn't like this. He wants to go to purely music school. And so from the beginning, he decided that he wanted to make a life for himself as a performer. And so he was bartending during the day. And so how we've both been trying to make our dreams happen, but in very different ways. Um, and it's just, it's just interesting how people try and, and make their dreams happen, you know? I mean, I mean there's also ex- the issue too, if you take your dream and make it your profession, it takes some of the joy away from it. So in some ways, I think it's healthier to have a job that is your job that you don't hate, but it isn't your passion. And then you pursue the things that you care about after that, as opposed to trying to mix the two. I mean, I'm sure if your job is the same as your passion, it makes getting up and going to work every day a lot easier. Mm. But you're right. It means that there's no respite. I mean, for those people whose job is their passion, what do they do to get away from it all? Do they go do their taxes? I don't know. Yeah, I don't I don't know like what your hobbies are if your hobby is your... I mean, truthfully, this podcast project of mine is kind of what I'm passionate about. I love coming up with questions and talking to my friends. Mm-hmm. I really like asking questions and I really like writing, but I can't be a journalist because I don't like talking to strangers. <laughs> so this is the best thing that I can do. This is pretty ideal. And now it's time for the easiest game in podcasting because there are no wrong answers. It's time for Word Association. Word association. I'll give you 10 words, one at a time, and all you have to do is say the first word or short phrase that comes into your mind. So clear your head. Are you ready? 
I'm ready. Right. Wrong. Work. Twerk. <laughs> As in work it? Yes. Coffee. Delicious. Now, you were a barista briefly, is that correct? More than briefly. You know those those movies that have those big sweeping themes that they just come back to every time something happens? That's what my life was like as a barista. I was one in high school and then in college on the summer when I had time, I was a barista then. And then when I moved to New York and I got my big job in publishing, I was like, I don't need you now, Starbucks, I'm on my own. And then I did my budget and realized I had $40 a month for food and entertainment. So then I worked there again. So is the smell of coffee, does it smell like satisfaction or does it smell like work? It smells like both. It smells like sadness, but also it's so delicious. So, yeah. Delicious sadness. Delicious sadness. That, that is how I would market my, my coffee brand when I move to Colombia and start growing my own beans. All right, moving on. Stage. Passion. Chicken. Abstain. Abstain. Is that because you're a vegetarian or because chicken makes you not want to have sex? I'm a pescatarian. Oh, okay. Baby. Work. Obama. <laughs> uh, work. <laughs> There's a lot of work going on in this yep. list here. Yep, yep. <laughs> and according to the transitive property, Obama makes you think of twerking. <laughs> Fiction. Imagination. California. Dreams. I don't know why. I really thought you were going to say knows how to party. <laughs> I forgot I could do phrases. All right. Last one. Okay. Cosby. <sighs> Dreams dashed. Mm, all right. And for our grand finale, it's time for the segment that's half eulogy, half apology. I call it Eul Apologies. <laughs> So without doing a really thorough audit of my friends, I'm going to say that you are probably my coolest friend, Emily. Okay. And when I say coolest, I don't necessarily mean like chill or relaxed or like a cucumber because you, you still sort of radiate a frantic energy. Yeah, that never went away. But what I mean when I say cool is that you have the tastes and sensibility of a person who is just sort of generally accepted as cool. You're only a couple of years younger than me, and yet you seem to appreciate popular culture on the same level as like a 25-year-old sculptor in Brooklyn or something. Yeah, which is so hilarious because I feel so far removed sometimes. Maybe it's all in my head, but okay. or maybe it's a testament to the relative lameness of my other friends. But I, I do think some of that is attributable to your innate skill at sussing out people and things that are truly authentic, which is where I think the the very best pop culture originates. So congratulations. You're my coolest friend. Thank you. It feels it's an honor just to be nominated. But that's not why I love you. 
I love you, Emily, because most people who are as cool as you are are acutely aware of how cool they are and how much cooler they are than other people. And so they tend to slip into pretense and egomania and toolishness. And as far as I can tell, we don't talk all that often anymore, but as far as I can tell, you're still a kind, sweet person who doesn't look down on others. And that's not a short joke. I was going to say, it's difficult for me. And this is the part where I'm going to make it all about me for a second, but I promise I'll turn it around. (laughs) Working on the college newspaper was a pretty big part of my identity at college and, and thereafter. And it was probably the formative personal and professional experience of my adult life. Early on, I was strongly influenced by my predecessors, the editors who came before me, who taught me how to think and write and behave with the integrity of a journalist. Mm -hmm. And when I became an upperclassman and a senior editor, I tried very hard to try and pass that on. And honestly, I don't think I was always particularly good at it. I can remember the names of some people that I seemed to alienate immediately for whatever reason. But you, Emily, you allowed me to feel like a mentor, even though you were inherently so much cooler and possibly smarter than me already. (laughs) Okay. And you were either kind enough or open-minded enough to look up to me a little bit. Again, not a short joke. And I think that ability is also a skill. And I think ultimately our relationship turned into kind of a big brother, little sister relationship that ultimately made me feel a little bit cooler by association. And so I have two apologies, one very general and one slightly less general. First, I'm genuinely sorry if you ever came to me for advice or if I ever offered you advice unsought that turned out to be garbage. Most of my advice to you uh, was dispensed in my early 20s when I was, frankly, a huge idiot. And that advice was probably not of the highest quality. So I'm just issuing a blanket apology for that in in case I led you astray. More specifically, though, I want to apologize for the time after I graduated when my girlfriend at the time was still in Rochester and busy unbecoming my girlfriend. And I drew you into an angry and pitiful forensic examination of my romantic life. I basically drew you into this dark world in which I was suddenly living. And I feel like I put you in a difficult position. You were like, you know, a junior or senior in college and you had your own stuff you were dealing with. And no matter how uncool I've been, you've always treated me like someone who was cool, which is just very, very cool of you. And so I want to thank you for being so cool and for subjecting yourself not only to the Hammersley Inquisition, but to the whole Hammersley experience. <laughs> oh, I did always think of you as as a mentor and like a, a big brother. You and Eric were always just so wonderful because I knew that you were as passionate about writing and about the newspaper as I was. And that always was really special to me. You're referring to Eric Danton, future Hammersley Inquisition guest. Yes. You two were huge in forming my relationship with that community and with 
the newspaper and with that life. And what I've always appreciated about you is that I felt like you were always an honest and trustworthy person and that you cared about me genuinely and had my best interest. And I, so I felt like I, I felt very safe with you and I always felt like I could talk to you and be myself. And, and I always really appreciated that about you. Well, for once, it's nice to be sexually (laughs) non-threatening. I know. I felt bad. I don't want it to be like, listen, you didn't want to F me. So that's great. But once you go out on your own and I mean, especially like living in New York and figuring out who I am, you know, as a person and all that fun stuff, like there does become that question, right? If you are good friends with somebody and you get along really well, why don't you date? But there's a lot more to it than that. And there are different types of relationships and that's important to have. And and I, I mean, I just always appreciated that I knew that you would always be my friend and always be there for me. I will always have your back, which seems like a good note on which to wrap things up. Emily Epstein White, your Hammersley Inquisition is now complete. Thank you very much for your time and your honesty and your time. And thanks to all the listeners out there. If you have any comments, questions, compliments, or complaints, you can reach out at hammerslay at gmail.com. Main title theme generously provided by Jason Menkes at Copilot Music and Sound. All opinions and bad jokes are solely my own and do not represent the views of my employer, my family, my friends, and especially my guests. Until next time, my name is Jason Hammerslay. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Inquisition, what a show! The Inquisition, here we go. We know you're wishing that we'd go away, but the Inquisition's here and it's here to stay.